The RetroBuzz starts right after this. You know, for, for me, I, I absolutely adored working at Commodore. It was it was my DNA. I couldn't wait to get into work every day. My team was fantastic, and we loved every second of every day. It was just amazing. Uh, it was it was horrific. Um, like when you're seeing people coming around like scavengers, bidding for things. Well, I'll give you five quid for that table and and two quid for this and all of that it was um it was horrible really um but, but more than that it's like because it was the end of an era and, and for me personally i mean it has been such a huge part of my dna for 12 and a half years it's it's really i'm, I'm guessing although, although thankfully i've never had uh, the feeling but i'm guessing it must have been like losing a child They were probably the largest uh, or second largest uh, PC manufacturer in Europe and they bought out the silica stores in the UK. Uh, I think they bought a hundred odd stores and Rumbelows, yeah. Well, they produced this thing called the Walker. Yeah, it looked like uh, a cross between a vacuum cleaner, Darth Vader's helmet and K9 Doctor Who's metal, metal dog. We went to see Manfred Schmidt, who was the uh, founder and managing director of ESCOM. And we suggested that it might be a worthwhile thing for him to consider buying Commodore UK as a going concern. And I think this is probably indicative of them as a company. He tried to blackmail Colin and I, and he said that I will buy Commodore UK, but only if you and Colin work for me. And frankly, we didn't want to work for him. And then he said, well, in that case, then he said, you'll have to go back and tell all your employees that they're out of, they're out of a job because you turned me down. There is a massive um, need for in our community is to find out what has happened since uh, ESCOM bought the uh, the assets from Commodore in the auction in New York, which I was actually at. Um, what happened? How ESCOM basically screwed things up? I would say people had real, genuine plans to rebuild the Amiga uh, platform and uh, some were some were definitely uh, hoaxes but the vast majority of people spent a lot of time money and effort trying to to uh, recreate the amiga dream and, and and i always when i say amiga dream it always sounds a bit strange but but it, it really was if you're an amiga today dating back to the 80s and 90s i mean it was a it was a fantastic time for computing in my opinion, it's the, it's the most significant technology I've seen since Commodore. The story that, that Dave and I are going to tell will tell about the post-Commodore. Yeah, all right, there's some there's lots of lows, but there are many highs. But actually, how it actually survived and continues to, to today in all its various and I say wonderful forms. And let's celebrate the wonderful forms. It was a mess. It was definitely um, uh, court cases and what have you. Uh, but through all of that, we've come up with some incredible developments. So uh, I've called a book From Vultures to Vampires, 25 Years of Copyright Chaos and Technological Triumph. Hey guys, it's Friday, so you know what time it is. It's time for the Retro Buzz, and we've got a great show for you today. But before we get to our special guests, let's introduce the panel. We've got with us Mr. Hairboy today, Douglas Smith, Mr. Cool Toy. Yeah, sans hat today. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> always good to have you. And then we've got the talk box, Mr. Glenn Planamento from YouTube.com slash G Planamento. But you're not saying that. Hello, everybody. Hello. Oh, hello, everybody. Put my little accent <laughs> on there. Hello. Good day. <laughs> That's pitiful. I yeah, I don't know what region that is. but <laughs> Crikey. Are you yeah. laughing at me? <laughs> you better put that modulator back on. You'll do better with that one. <laughs> I think I have it here over somewhere. Let's, let's see if I save this at all. I'll put on my Amiga voice. Is that better? That Yeah, that's better. <laughs> Long live Amiga. Uh, now that he's got that out of his system. So who do we got? I did. I had to get out of my system a little bit. Uh, another another very good episode here. Um, you know, we had some Amiga talk last week, but we have even more so this week with someone who really has uh, a fairly good history of the machine itself. Uh, David uh, Pleasance is in the house, and he uh, was the former, uh, actually the last Hello. CEO or president of Commodore UK. And an extreme thank you for joining us today, David. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, we have so many things to talk about, and I'm going to, again, probably dominate the talk from my two co-hosts here. But just so people who don't know you, can you give a little rundown of how you started with Commodore? Uh, yes, indeed. I, I actually joined Commodore in June of 1983, Commodore UK. Um, I joined as a salesman. Um, within three three years, I'd become sales and marketing director at the UK office. Um, I then had an opportunity to apply for general managership within Commodore, which was at CEL, Commodore Electronics Limited, which uh, was in fact the holding co company for the group. And that was based in Basel in Switzerland, uh, where I looked after 35 countries. That's all of the countries where Commodore did not have an operating subsidiary. I was there for two years, and then I went to, to the United States to work for Commodore Inc in the Westchester building. Commodore Inc. was a sales um, company for Commodore in America. And I was the vice president there of consumer products. I was there for about a year. Um, and then I was brought back to the UK and, and was actually forced into becoming the MD at the UK because Commodore was in very big trouble. And they knew that I had built the UK business more or less. So they forced me to go back and try and help them to get out of trouble. So 12 and a half years altogether, but in, in uh, you know, varied positions uh, around the world, um, which I have to be honest with you, was was really the best days of my life. Incredible. I, I definitely can understand that. I used to work for a company called Prodigy, who was a, a, a pre-web service, if you will. And that was probably one of the best places, aside from my current job, in case my bosses are watching. I, I'm, I love my current <laughs> job. But outside of that, outside of that, Prodigy was my other good job. Now, we're obviously going to talk about our lovely lady here, but we were talking a little couple of things before uh, the show started about uh, like the Commodore 64. And mm -hmm. uh, you had mentioned that something about, you know, how many were actually sold. And I had always heard about 21 million Commodore 64s have been sold, but you kind of hinted at that maybe that number was not correct. No, it's not correct. Um, the only reason I know for certain the number is that um, some of your audience may know that uh, uh, as uh, MD of the UK company, when Commodore went bankrupt, we tried to launch a management buyout. Uh, we felt we got very close to it. Um, and as such, we registered with the liquidator. And so we had an opportunity to do our due diligence. And therefore, we went and we had to look at all the books. Um, the actual number uh, of 64 sold worldwide is just under 27 million. Ooh. Oh, wow. So it's a little higher. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. 20, just under 27 million. That's the actual real number. Very impressive. Now, obviously, you were at the company uh, pre-Amiga. So you were there when you appropriated this under the nose of Atari. Can you tell us a little bit about Commodore's <laughs> perspective when the Amiga Corporation was kind of in a, I think it was a $500,000 30-day deal with Atari to keep them afloat? And you guys kind of came in the last minute, offered a deal they couldn't refuse. And want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, it's really it's kind of a sad story because um, probably most people know that the person who founded Commodore and built it up was Jack Tramiel. And um, now I joined the company in, in um, I said, June of '83, 
in January of 84, I went to the winter CES in Vegas. Um, I wasn't supposed to be there officially because uh, it's, it was the US and, you know, I was based in Europe. But I wanted to have a look around and so on and so forth. And Jack Terrell was actually on the stand there and he was his usual aggressive self shouting at everybody. So I, I, I shook hands with him, but that's the only time I ever got to meet him because uh, a couple of months later, he had uh, fallen out with Irving Guild um, and uh, had moved on. Um, and of course, what he did then, he, he'd heard about uh, the Amiga product, um, uh, which was, uh, 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 what was it called? Uh, Toro, um, Toro, El Toro or something. Anyway, he, he, he heard about it. So what he did was he went and, and did that deal with them. He knew that they were in serious financial trouble. He lent them a half a million dollars and said, it's got to be paid back within, it was something like 60 days, otherwise right. I'll own the company, right. something like that. Anyway, so the moment he'd given them his check, he went off and he bought Atari for the princely sum of $1. Because of course, Atari was in huge debts. And I don't know if many of you know, but often if you buy a company that's bankrupt, you're supposed to pay off all the debts, but you never do. You, you just <laughs> never do, you know, you just simply, you just bypass it, you know. So he got a tire for a dollar and his plan was, of course, to, to have um, uh, the Amiga product and sell it as, as an Atari product, which would have been his way right back into the business from having um, having, having lost his position with, um, with Commodore. The reason, of course, he lost his position was that he needed financing to grow the business and, and um, Irving Gill came along with lots of money and eventually uh, it turned out that um, Irving Guild had 22% shares, Jack had 6%. So um, he really wasn't he a lost, very strong He lost position. control. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, what happened was that uh, Commodore heard about the uh, Amiga product within the 60 days went over to meet up with them and um, and said, well, that's a terrible deal that you've got there. Offered them a much <laughs> better deal and and did the deal, signed up the deal. Um, Jack Tramiel found out and went absolutely <laughs> ballistic. He went, he went over to the Amiga one and said, I'm going to sue your asses. And they said, you can't do that. And they handed him his check back. They'd never that was the deal. They, they paid it back. And they, it was yeah. paid back literally at the 11th hour, correct? They were literally down yeah. to the wire when they paid it. Yeah. And as I understand it, um, that check is actually framed on the wall. I think it's in Leonard Tramiel's um, home office. It's actually, the check is, you know, it's framed. <laughs> it's just quite a famous check, really. So it was really at that point that really the huge battle between Atari and Commodore to outdo one another really really speared up. They, they were two companies that, you know, they were a little more um, civil. But I guess after that, with the Atari ST coming out and the Amiga, the two companies were really going after each other's throats at that point, right? Well, not straight away, because you've got to remember the first product launched from Amiga was the 1000, which was a uh, in no man's land. It wasn't it wasn't half of a business product, and it wasn't a low enough spec, a low enough price to be a games product. So it really was in kind of no man's land. In the meantime, Jack had launched the ST, which definitely hit the market that the Amiga was originally designed for. So they got a big head start on, on us. Um, and of course, the other thing that they did was very smart. They put a MIDI port in the ST, and that opened itself up to, to, to the whole home music market, which is very big and still is. Um, so it took a long, long time before we eventually uh, reached the 500 that we had a product that we could compete with. And that's when I come into action. I love that. I, 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 <laughs> I absolutely love that. And there's another reason for that, you see, because the first person, well, let me correct that. When I first joined Commodore, I was, I was uh, employed. Pets. Uh -oh. It's okay, we're back in. Uh, yeah. Commodore Pets in the retail market. Um, I did that for three months, and then they, they, they got in touch with me and said, Look, um, Arc 64 has been released for the last four or five months. It's going crazy. We need somebody. We need a really experienced uh, retail expert to head up the uh, the 64 sales. So I, I went to to do that job. Now the guy who was in charge of the consumer division at that time was a guy called Paul Welsh. He was very close friends 
um, with one of one of Tramiel's um, uh, very uh, close allies. Um, and cut a long story short, uh, Paul got fired from Commodore, and he joined Atari. And Paul never liked me, and the reason he never liked me is because I was given to him. He didn't pick me. Um, it's a very long story. I won't go into the details of it. But the bottom line is that he didn't like me at all. So when we, when I suddenly he's suddenly out there selling the ST, and then I'm out suddenly selling the 500, I took him on personally, <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely outsold them, outmarketed them in every way possible, um, with lots of trick marketing um, things, which well, I'm you were. To so you were very good with the with the marketing, which is something that uh, Commodore US really was not good at. Do you want to talk a little bit about? Uh, Stephen was talking again before the show. He may be able to get a Sega CD at a really good price. I'm not going to mention Stephen, so you don't get outbid on that. But there was a time where Commodore was bold enough to actually put a huge billboard outside of Sega UK, taunting them with their <laughs> uh, CD32 versus wow. the Sega CD. You want to tell us about that one? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's again, in a way, it's a sad story because in all the years I was with Commodore, the CD32 was the first and only product that had ever been planned properly from its design to its marketing. The whole thing had been planned properly and it was a beautiful plan. But because Commodore got into financial difficulties, um, Mediali came to me and he said, I want you to launch the uh, the CD32 uh, before Christmas when it was planned to launch at the late spring early summer, and I said, Betty, you're crazy. He said, No, I, we need the extra sales. I said, Look, there's two things. First of all, you're not going to get extra sales. If we, I said, I've got orders for every 1,200 we're making up until Christmas. They're already ordered and sold. If you bring the CD32, anybody who was thinking of buying a 1,200 is not going to buy it. And we're going to have a major problem on our hands with all the retailers full of stock that they can't sell. So the second reason you shouldn't do it is that we've, I put um, development kits into every single one of the major software houses for the CD32 under NDA, and they were all developing a software specifically to utilize all the features that the CD32 had over and above the 1200. But he absolutely insisted it's got to be done, got to be done, got to be done. So... Anyway, you have to take on the role. So we did a fantastic launch. We hired the Science Museum in London to do the launch. And it was phenomenal. It really, really was a really great launch. But just before we launched, um, I got a, I, uh, there was an article in, um, in uh, a PC magazine. And it, it, got, it was, um, uh, what's this guy's name? The, the, uh, the guy, he, he was the president of, uh, uh, what's his name, the president of Sega. He was interviewed, and somebody in the interview said to him, what about 32-bit CD-based consoles? And he said, it can't be done. If anybody could do it, it would be Sega, it can't be done. Now, but three weeks later, of course, we actually, <laughs> we actually launched ours, and it was going to be in the shops two weeks after that. But on top of that, so, so actually what we did, I, I, we read that article out in the, at the launch. We read the article out with somebody with a great speaking voice who read the whole article out. And then we said, ladies and gentlemen, here, and then we opened the, you know, the smoke and mirrors, and there's the CD32, right, which is fantastic. But about a week or two later, a guy rang me up, and he said, David, he said, you probably don't remember me. He said, we've done some business before. He said, um, you've taken some poster sites with us in the past. Uh, and he said, and I've got to be honest with you, he said, I've got a fantastic deal for you. And I said, what's that? He said, he said, I've got three of the top poster sites in London. He said, you know how we work. You pay 50% deposit when you book it, and you pay the other 50% on the week that it goes live. And he said, I've had somebody who paid me 50% of these three sites, and they've now cancelled. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you that you can have these three for the 50% that they owe us. And this was obviously just That's before Christmas. Yeah, half yeah. off. It, it, it was a cracking deal. <laughs> and he said, well, by the way, one of them is right outside Sega's head office. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, was, that was too good to be true. See, Sega's advertising in the UK used to be, to be this good takes ages, uh, to, be, to be this good takes Sega. So we turned around and we, said, we put a big sign up and said, to be this good will take Sega ages. Because they'd said so. <laughs> and then they couldn't argue. They couldn't argue because they're... they're their, um, their president had actually 
quoted it in a magazine. So, so I said, there is a God sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And of course, that was that was before we ever had uh, internet or anything. But that, that went that went global. Everybody was raving about that, and it was fun. And I must also tell you that the, the guy in charge of um, uh, Sega UK is a guy called Nick Alexander, MD. He, you know, was really great because in the daytime we'd be competitors, at nighttime we'd have you know a beer at the bar together. And just after that went live. Um, we had our annual dinner. We always had a big dinner at Christmas time, raising money for charity and stuff like that and giving awards out. And of course, Nick was there with a lot of his people. I was there with a lot of mine. And he walked up to my table and he, he just looked at me and he said, a bit close to home, Mr. Pleasance, a bit close to home. <laughs> and I, all I said, I looked at him and I just said, well, where needs must, Nick, where needs must. And never another word was said, but they were seething. They were so angry. <laughs> <laughs> Now, being with all the uh, stuff that was gone on at Commodore, there was a lot of engineers, a lot of new tech being worked on. How did you feel about how the PC and Macintosh started creeping on the Amiga's graphical and sound capabilities, where the Amiga still was kind of, they finally released the AGA chipset, but it was kind of a little too late, but it wasn't like the AAA chipset that was being talked about. What kind of happened there? Why was Commodore not behind the hardware part as much as they probably should have been? Well, there's a there's uh, actually two solid reasons why Commodore went bankrupt, and I'll be honest with you, I knew within within a few weeks of joining them in '83 that they were not gonna they would fail one way or another. There's two reasons: is that one, they never ever ever had any kind of a business plan. Never, they never used to do market research and say, "What do you need? What are you looking for?" Um, what can we make you? You know, what, what does the market want? Can we compete with the price point? They never did any research like that. Us people at the front line who knew what we, what was needed. What would happen is that they were suddenly, I'd suddenly get 10,000 plus fours land in my warehouse. I mean, it's like, who would, it's like, it's like letting the virus into your warehouse. Who the hell ordered plus fours? I mean, there was, there was much, there was much use as a chocolate fire guard. Really, they were completely useless, right? So that's one reason why Commodore was always going to bound to fail. No business plan. The second reason is they never ever had any kind of external auditing. So they never knew if somebody in one of their subsidiaries, a general manager or a managing director, whatever the position was, was actually telling them the truth or not. Now, I know for an absolute fact, for example, and I'll talk about this guy. He's dead now, so I don't, I don't mind, to, but I talk about him anyway. <laughs> Our general manager of Commodore Netherlands was a guy called Bernard Van Tienen, who actually pops up in ESCOM later. He used to brag. He used to brag to all us general managers whenever we were together that every quarter's end, without fail, he was under target. So he would he would write false invoices. He would load product onto a lorry and send it on a journey for five days. So it went out of the warehouse. At the end of the quarter, records the sales, gets his commission, and gets his bonus. Five days later, it comes back in again. Wow. Now, if you imagine all the people that were doing things like that around the world, because they were never audited, and, and, and that was 100% genuine, I can promise you. And in fact, he was sued by the Dutch liquidators. And all of that is in my first book. I, in fact, I got in touch with a, a, a Dutch uh, uh, newspaper that printed a whole article about how he was being sued. And they gave me permission to not only to print it, but to also to, to translate it into English. And that all formed part of my book. It was all true. They were, they were, there were so many people doing that. And um, so, so getting back to the story um, that, we, that you asked me the question about, which uh, I've forgotten what it was. Oh, I know. It was about, it was about technology. What it was right. is that at the same time as this going, is going on, Mehdi Ali comes in, and he is the worst person in the world at recruiting people. He, he just he had terrible skills. For example, he he, uh, he recruited just before I went to, uh, uh, to to Commodore US in Westchester, when I was there in January of 92, just before I arrived, he he'd recruited, uh, I think it was in November, a guy who was head of um, engineering. The guy's name is Bill Sidness. His fame was that he was responsible for the famous IBM Junior 
which is considered the oh. biggest failure yeah. in, in, in corporate oh, history, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> now, 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 get this. You'll love this, right? My first day in Westchester, which I think was about the 7th or 8th of January, straight after the CES, the first thing I did was to go in and see the engineers. Because I know without engineers, we don't have a business, right? So I went in to see all the engineers. And guess what? There were seven, seven Amiga engineers. I get this. There were 40, four zero PC engineers that had all just been recruited by Bill Sidness because they were mates of his from IBM and he, he gave them a job. Now, who in their right minds in 1992 would even consider making your own, designing your own PCs when they're coming out of the Far East at ridiculously low prices? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So in order, so in order to pay for that, Sidness cuts all the, all the Amiga engineering. And he'd come along and he'd say, what are you working on? I'm, I'm working on this um, triple R. We don't need that. Stop it. Do this. And they just stopped them. There were so many things that were half designed and half built that got canned and got canned and got canned. And it was starving the, the R&D and the engineering on the Amiga side of things. That's what caused the problem. That's, that's heartbreaking. Because I know that the AAA chipset was pretty far along and then they simply had a, you know, basically, and the 16-bit audio and all these things were, were pretty much underway. And like I said, it got stopped. Now I know why. And then we got the AGA, which was a stopgap. I mean, it was something, um, but it was just not enough to be where the Amiga was about seven, eight years ahead of the PC and Mac platform. That seven years got depleted, and it never, it never kind of recovered from that. Absolutely true. Absolutely. So let's take let's take a little bit more further down. We, we do want to talk about a couple of things before we run out of time, and I could talk forever. So unfortunately, Commodore did go bankrupt. At least Commodore UK did. I'm sorry, Commodore US did, not Commodore UK. Commodore UK was doing very fairly well. Yeah. So when Commodore UK was, uh, I can do it again, when Commodore US, that's how close we are, Commodore US kind of went belly up. You were trying to salvage the company. You were trying to salvage the Amiga. You were trying to salvage the product line. And you guys yeah. were, were doing it, but something happened. You want to go into a little bit what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing is that, um, you know, sometimes when you, you end up working with some, alongside somebody, when I was, as I mentioned that I was forced back to the UK as MD. I didn't really want to do that. But just to fill that in, there are two kinds of um, salespeople in the world. There are hunters and there are farmers. I'm a hunter. I love to get out and get new business, and that's what I do. I'm not a farmer. So I was offered the job uh, of MD in the UK a long time earlier, but I turned it down because I'd, I'd built that business and I knew how solid it was. I wanted more exciting adventures. Anyway, eventually I was forced back to do that job because, you know, as Medi Ali said to me, he said, I know, I've known all along that you're the person who built the business. We need solid business more than ever now, so I'm making you in charge. And I said, okay, well, you need to know something. I said, yes, I can read a balance sheet. But I'm a sales and marketing expert. I'm, I'm good at what I do. But you don't want me to handle the finances because that would take away from my ability to sell and market and get more revenue. So we'd, we'd already got a, a financial guy in there, Colin Proudfoot. And I said, let Colin and I share the, the MD ship so I can concentrate on what I do best and he can do what he does best. And we just really got on incredibly well. well I didn't even know him before, but it was just one of those things that you meet somebody, you know, this really is good. Anyway, when, when the time came and eventually Commodore declared bankruptcy, Colin and I looked at each other and we said, you know, we can salvage something out of this. Then we sat down and we, we did a business plan. We worked with a company called Coopers and Librand, who are famous for helping uh, management buyouts uh, uh, up to very high, high level. And we sat down and we wrote a business plan that was so comprehensive and the truth of the matter is that from that business plan, with Coopers and Lyman's help, Colin and I raised $50 million. Now, this is 94.5. You try and raise $50 million today, right? It's almost impossible. And the reason was that we had a fantastic business plan, exactly what we were going to do, how we could utilize and make revenue from the, the brand names and stuff like that. Now, our $50 million is made up of several factions. There were two or three high-wealth individuals. There was one guy who represented the consortium, um, and between them, they raised 25 million of our 50 million. 
We also got onto a, a Chinese manufacturing company called New Star Electronics. Now, New Star Electronics at that time, they were an illegitimate company. They were making, they were ripping off Sega and Nintendo products in China and selling them. Okay. But the Chinese government had told them that they've got to get legitimate. So they came and visited us. We thought this would be a fantastic match. If we can get them, and they were going to invest the other 25 million. If we can get them as our manufacturers already based in China and they're a 50% partner with us, it's the perfect combination to get quality products at a low cost and they're investors, so they're going to make sure it works. What happened was that right at the very last minute, about 36 hours before the auction, and let me tell you that Colin and I had, had done all of our homework and we knew that we needed $50 million. We knew that the assets would probably sell, we guessed between 13 and 16 million. We were pretty accurate with that guess. But we knew that we needed about $50 million. And I'll tell you for why. We knew, let's say we bought the business and we paid $15 million for it. There is no way on God's earth that any of the suppliers to Commodore previously would supply you on credit terms. They'd all right. been burnt, burnt with big, you know, big numbers. So we knew we would have to pay cash up front. So Colin being the genius that he is, he worked it out to the, we worked out seven months and three days. And if, if our business plan ran to clockwork, then we'd be in a position where we could get credit. So we knew we had to, we needed $50 million, not only to buy the business, but to keep it going for that amount of time before we become self-sufficient. Now, at the last minute, ESCOM, through a guy called Petro Tuchenko, stole New Style Electronics, promised them all sorts of things if they left us and went to them. They didn't deliver, of course, but New Star believed them. They took their $25 million away. So there oh. we were, 20, we got $25 million. We're sitting there in the courtroom and we knew, let's say we did buy it and we could have bought it, but we would have lost all those investors' money within six or seven months because it just the numbers didn't add up. But that's our integrity, you see. Can you see what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't we couldn't make a bid. It would be it would be suicide. Um and unfortunately, we tried very hard. We, we tried to talk with um, uh, Manfred Schmidt, uh, who was the founder of, uh, of ESCOM. Uh, and, and in fact, Commodore UK, we, we were the last surviving subsidiary because we were so profitable, you know, because we had a solid business. We didn't do dodgy deals. We didn't do sale or return and all that kind of stuff. We marketed well. We sold the product well. And the product was always in demand. So anyway, it was, I think it was 17 months almost to the day after the parent company went bankrupt that we eventually had to declare bankruptcy. But just prior to our declaring bankruptcy, Colin and I went to see Manfred Smith and we said, look, Manfred, we think that you should buy Commodore UK as a going concern because it's a profitable business. And not only that, we could give you, you can inherit six million pounds worth of tax credits and then the alarm bells ring and say, well, hang on, how can you, if you're a profitable company, how come you got tax credits? Well, it's this game that they call transfer pricing, right? Which I'll go into in a second. But anyway, Manfred Schmidt said, I'll tell you what, gentlemen, he said, I'll, I'll buy Commodore UK, but only if you two stay and work for me. And neither of us wanted to work for him. <laughs> and we said, no, you know, we, we said, no, sorry, we, we're not interested in that. And he, so he turned around and he said, well, how are you guys going to feel? You now have got to go back to your office and you've got to tell all your staff that they're all out of, out of a job because you wouldn't work for me. And Colin turned around and said, now you know why we will never work for you. Yeah, really. that kind of thing, right? But I, I, I'll just tell you about the transfer pricing situation. It's very simple. Uh, I'm just going to pick, pick something. Let's just say, for example, Commodore UK buys an Amiga 500 from its parent company and we pay $200 for it, right? We have to warrant it, we have to market it, we have to give margins to the retailers and so on and so forth. So we end up, we sell it for $400. And so we make the profit. Now then, when it comes time to have to start to pay tax, suddenly we're not paying $200 and selling it for 400. Our transfer price changes to $400. So we're buying it for 400, we're selling it for 400, and we, on paper, we're losing money on everyone we sell. All that's happening is that that profit is going to the corporation. So that's why we had six million pounds worth of tax credits. And that would have meant 
if Manfred Smith had half a brain, they could have turned over probably about, my guess is around about 18 or 20 million pounds and not have to pay a penny in tax by putting it through our business. Wow. Uh, to me, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer. It's, it's, just, it's just fascinating to see how much stuff happens behind the scenes you know, that, that people yes. don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually almost like, not espionage, but, you know, almost like spy stuff. What's going on with Commodore, guys are shipping product out just to have it come back in X amount of days to, you know, get money in their own pockets. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. hiring PC engineers and, and wiping out the, the cash cow Amiga engineers. It's, it's just really weird. So with that all being said, you're actually working on a new book, yes. right? You have a new book coming out, and it's actually going to be on Kickstarter, am I, am I right? Yes, yeah, it's actually launched today. Kickstarter is excellent today. Yes, it's, why don't you tell us it, a little bit about it? Yeah, indeed. It's um, I'll, I'll be honest. After I'd written my first book, the, the Commodore: The Inside Story, which um, was hugely successful and people seemed to really love it, I didn't think I'd have anything else more to say to tell anybody. But since I've been back in the industry, certainly the last three or four years, I'm meeting lots and lots of people who who are in the industry and have been all this 25 years, and they're telling me all sorts of stories about. Um, uh, the kind of things that were happening after ESCOM um, um, made a mess of, of the business. It went to Amiga Technologies uh, under that Petro Duchenko again. They made a mess of it. And it went from it went from one company or an individual to another, to another, to another. And it was even gateway like, computers, right? Even gateway yeah, computers had it for a time. Yeah, gateway uh, and and um, Tulip computers. And um, anyway, the, the fact of the matter is that it was uh, in a lot of cases, people were just getting hold of trademarks or IPs or logos um, or domain names so that they could basically make money out of it. Uh, and it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't for the right reasons. So, it, and from that, it became a very difficult place for developers because they were scared to use trademarks. There's lots of court cases that went on. In fact, they're still going on now, some of them. Um, and there's, there was lots of cease and desist orders, stop you, you cannot use this, it belongs to me, and all sorts of things, an absolute mess. Um, so, but in spite of all of that, um, over the last 25 years, there have been some incredible developments made in, in software and hardware. And, um, and so this story, that I, the new book that I'm writing, starts with from the day in the courtroom when ESCOM bought the, the, the assets, and I was actually in the courtroom, so it's a good point for me to start, I guess. Um, what happened to ESCOM, how they screwed it up, um, what happened to Omega Technologies, and then where it goes to thereafter, from one company, one individual, to another, to another, to another. Um, and they were like, they were like um, parasites, um, you know, ripping shreds away from um, scavengers, ripping shreds away from, from Commodore and the Amiga. Um, anyway, the story goes right through to today, 25 years, and it, it tells a story of how, in spite of all of those difficult times, um, we have developed some amazing, amazing products. And so I've called the book um, From Vultures to Vampires, because you may know, your, your audience may know that the Vampire is one of the new products, and the standalone Vampire 4 is one of the most incredible bits of technology I've seen for a very, very long time. And it just seemed a very fitting title for the book. So I'm telling the whole story, um, who got what, who, who sued who, um, what happened and all the rest of it. There's a lot of information there. Um, and basically the subtitle of the book is 25 years of uh, uh, copyright chaos and uh, technology um, uh, triumph. So it's, it, it's, I think it's a really fitting name for the book. And I'm actually co-authoring with um, Trevor Dickinson, who's the... He's a huge, uh, very well-known figure in the Amiga circles. Um, he's the owner of uh, Aeon Technologies. And it happened, I mean, he and I have been friends since I came back in the industry five years ago. And it, when I told him about what I was going to write, he then told me he's got lots and lots of stuff that he's actually recorded um, since those days when I wasn't around because after Commodore went, I got out of the industry completely. Went different life, I went under the radar. But he's got all this information already logged and written down. So we're now co-authoring. And, and the ideal thing is that he'll tell it from the way it was reported when ESCOM bought this and so on and so forth. And I'm now in interviewing the people that were around at that time and getting their viewpoint as of today. 
So we, we, we've got this fantastic and broad perspective then and now and putting things in place. And I think it's going to be a fantastic, exciting book. Now, the, the most important question I'm going to ask you uh, this entire uh, 40 minutes we've been talking is how do you feel about how much more powerful the Amiga was than the PC and Mac? Yeah, well, it's another example of, of just wasted opportunity, really. Um, I mean, I don't know, there's been a lot of rumors around, but what, the thing that really saddened me the most about when, when ESCOM bought the assets, uh, Colin and I were over in Westchester doing our due diligence at the same time as ESCOM were. And, you know, they didn't even go in and visit the engineers, the Amiga engineers. They didn't visit them. They didn't even talk to them. But I did, and I went over to them, and there's a guy there called, was there, Dr. Ed Hepler, along with Dave Haney and other people, but Dr. Ed Hepler, and he showed me the product that he was working on, had been for the last 18 months, which was codenamed Ombre, and you've never seen anything like it in your life. This was, in essence, it was an HP uh, risk-based core to which they put into it a 3D rendering engine, a blitter, a chunky planar. It had 5.1 surround sound stereo, which was state-of-the-art in 94. And I'm not kidding you, what this, he showed it to me cobbled together with software, of course, and it wasn't a, a finished um, chip or anything. But what that could do, I've not seen anything like it since. There's nothing on the market today that comes close. Now, for me, the sad thing is that they did not did ESCOM didn't they didn't even look at it. They didn't take it. They let all the engineers go. So how can you how can you develop a new technology if you don't retain the brains? I mean, they were simply no. they were trying to milk the existing technology for all they could and and leave it, which is a shame. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, the whole thing is really such so ridiculous because as as we mentioned before, Colin and I we had a business plan. And we knew, that, of course, that the Amiga in its, in its then current form could only last so long. But one of the things that, that we had developed, uh, um, we, we had designed, we worked with a German company, and we had uh, a tower case design. And uh, what we were going to do was that we were going to make it so that anybody with an Amiga of any kind, whether it's a 500, 600, 1,200, 2,000, 2,000, or whatever, would be able to upgrade by going into their, their little computer dealers, the ones who we all depend on because they're really good at their job. I'm not talking about the multiples, like the, you know, the, the Sears and stuff like that. They'd be able to go in and say, right, I've got this, I don't want to upgrade. So they'd be able to get a tower case and they'd be able to put upgraded um, motherboard in and then use some of their own peripherals. And then gradually, as they wanted to, they could expand and grow. To support that, we were going to sell PCBs on their own, the people who wanted to do just that. And this whole thing was called Commodore Infinity, Amiga Infinity, which, you know, it's the name we come up with, ready, with everything ready to launch on it. But of course, in the meantime, while we'd, we'd obviously do that as long as we could, we knew that, for example, Ombre, there's no way it could be backwards compatible because it was just so far in advance. But we'd have built a product range based around Ombre that would take over from Amiga. So we have something new in, for the future. Um, that was our intention. We, were, we would have had nothing to do with manufacturing PCs or manufacturing anything else, um, just Amiga products. Um, and we would, we would obviously license technology to people. We might, we might look at doing all the peripherals, which of course Commodore never even did themselves. You know, you look, look at GVP. They did all right. the peripherals, and, and we didn't make anything out of that. That's nonsense, you know. Just, we should have done it in conjunction with them, work with them, share the costs, and both, you know, you build you build a whole you hold a business which is built on solid foundation that way. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think what, for that to interrupt, but I think that might be more of when Commodore had like the PET and the Commodore the Big Twenty, the Commodore Sixty Four. That was more of a Commodore made the machine and just let it go, and then let the community build all the peripherals. And I think when Amiga came in, it was never seen as anything more than just like a Commodore 64 to some of that management, where I'm going to sell, we'll sell the machine and let everyone else worry about the peripherals. I think that might have been one of Commodore's problems. They didn't see the Amiga for what it was when they acquired it. They got it 
really inspired Atari. They had a nice machine. They were going to sell it. It was, it was pretty advanced. But they didn't really know what they had. Am I wrong mm. in saying that? No, you're absolutely right. But again, you see, it's all down to the personnel that they hired. You know, uh, I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Steve Jobs, and I, I know I probably shouldn't say that because he was in some ways he's a competitor. But he was a very, very smart man. And is is the book of his quotes out there? I've not actually read the book, but there's one quote of his that I absolutely live by, and that quote says, "You don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. You hire smart people and let them tell you what to do." And Commodore never did that. Yeah, never my son that says that to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's so true. You know, let's get back to to we talking about the CD32, and you said. It, we didn't have it in America because it was stuck in the Philippines. But, you know, so there's another example of, of, of Commodore and, and Mediali's recruitment policy. He, at the same time as he hired Bill Sidness, he recruited a new head of manufacturing. I can't remember the guy's name, which is terrible, but I just can't. Anyway, he said, we, we had manufacturing um, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, uh, and various other places that we'd had for a long, long time. And he said, close them all down. We're gonna we're gonna build a place in the Philippines. Now, my initial thought to myself was, why on earth would we want to do that? We we have no business in the Far East. I'm not saying we have only have a little business. We had no business. We weren't selling anything into the Far East. Why would you build a manufacturing plant that's four or five weeks by sea from your main market, which is Europe? It didn't make any sense. Now, do you know why this guy decided that he wanted to build a factory in the Philippines? There must have been some kind of kickback of some kind. Well, the company that he worked for prior to joining Commodore had a place in the Philippines and he had his mistress there. <laughs> you weren't, you weren't wrong there, mistress. Mr. Yeah. Doug. Okay, I've had, I have had my mistress since, uh, well, since 1989. So I can't, yeah. I can't fully blame the guy on that one. <laughs> Isn't it amazing well, something so monumental comes down to something as basic as a guy didn't want to be too far away from his girlfriend <laughs> on the side? Yeah, it's it's outrageous when you think about. It. I mean, this was remember this was a billion dollar corporation, and that's that's why. So, you know, so Madam Fifi took down a billion dollar corporation, more or less. Yeah. Well, they all they all added their own little bits. You know, they didn't need a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> Well, these, there's been a lot of bad times we're talking about. It. We got your book on Kickstarter, but what? Tell me something that at Commodore was just something that you know you always remember was a good thing. Whether it was a, a personal experience with one of the engineers, uh, you know, working on the with the Amiga or something else, meeting with a vendor. What was just something that always stuck with you, like the Steve Jobs quote, when Steve Jobs quoted that I wish my Apple was as good as the Amiga. Right after he said that quote. Hey, wait a second. Here. What's the next thing? That's not oh, what he, he said. said. It. It's, it's in the book. He, he, book, didn't, so. he didn't say that. That's that's in Glenn's oh, book. Oh, it's there. Because no, once, there. listen, once you go Mac, you don't go back. Right, because it's too slow. So you have no choice. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, I, that could be a discussion that goes on forever. But um, no, <laughs> I, well, I, I, what I'd like to what I'd like to talk about is, um, uh, it, yes, it's in a way, it's a it's a personal triumph that um, is probably going to make me sound very big headed. But frankly, I don't care. Um, I'll tell you exactly what happened and, and, and why the UK became so uh, so successful at what we did was that I had a, another new MD came in over me. And this guy, his name is Steve Franklin. He's actually passed away now, sadly. But he, he, when he came in, he was from the business system side of business. And so when he came in, the first thing he did, he fired all of our business systems people that were in Commodore, people that sold our PCs and stuff. He just fired them all and brought all his own people in. He did, not, he did not even speak to me for two weeks, not a word, because I was in charge of, of the consumer division, right? Well, they, they call us the toy boys, right? But anyway, um, he came into office on this Monday morning after two weeks, and he said, Pleasant, it's my office now. Sat me down. He said, look, he said, there's, there's no easy way to say this, he said, but he said, if I knew anybody who understood your side of the business, you wouldn't be here now. Ouch. I mean, I, I said, oh, thanks a lot. Great you know? pep talk. Yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah. And and he said, no, he said, I've got nothing against you, he said, but I've been brought in here and I've been told to change the whole ethos of Commodore UK. I don't really know why. 
So he spent about 20 minutes telling me all of his rules and regulations about integrity and honesty and all this stuff, right? All of which I've lived by my whole life. So it finished and I said, Steve, that's perfectly okay by me. And I said, I'll tell you what, Steve, I'll make you a deal. You ain't in any position to make an effing deal with me. I said, no, hear me out. <laughs> I said, if you let me do what I want to do with this side of the business, I'll either bring you more business than you've ever seen in your life before, or you'll have you'll have a reason to get rid of me. What do you want to do? I said, look, and I pointed over to the, his desk. I said, what's that over there? It was an Amiga 500. He said, it's an effing computer. I said, what that is is a, is a piece of plastic with some keys on it. I said, have you got any idea how difficult it is to market a piece of plastic with some keys on it? That's, that's not going to sit. You let me do what I want to do. From now on, we do not sell computers. We sell dreams. Exactly the terminology I used. What do you want to do? I said, I want to put a pack together that just looks so fantastic on the outside with illustrations of what this thing will do for you. We'll put in the best possible games, the games that belong, you know, that are going to be the top top hits if we can. We always must always put in productivity software, you know, word processing, art and stuff like that. So the parent justifies the purchase, right? But I said, let me do that. And he said, okay. So I sat around with my team and we talked about things. And what, what had just been announced was that a company called Ocean Software, they'd just come back from Hollywood and they'd just paid $1 million for the rights to use Batman the movie as a game, the news and the name, million bucks. So I went to the I went to these guys, the, the, the co-managing directors, and I said, gentlemen, I'm now going to give you a proposition which you will either have the balls to go with, or you'll send for the men in the white coats to come and drag me away. Right? <laughs> well, I said, what do you want to do? I said, okay. I said, Batman the movie. I said, when you when that product is finished, and they estimated it was going to be, I think it was September, following September. I said, I want you to give that to me in my pack exclusively for two months. You don't sell it on its own across the counter to anybody. I want it for two months in my pack only. Right? I said, I only want to commit to 10,000 pieces and I didn't want to pay you very much for it. <laughs> that so sounds like a deal I want. Yeah, well, the first thing he said was send for the men in the white coats, right? Yeah. So, and I explained to him, I said, look, I said, remember, I've got a very big marketing budget, and what I want to do is my pack will reflect your game. It's going to be so much about the fact that there is an Amiga inside will be incidental. Anyway, they said, look, David, we're worried about a couple of things. They were worried that our dealers are going to be really pissed off because if you've got that game for two months before they have, they're going to be angry. And I said, well, I said, I think you're right. But my guess is they'll only be angry for about 48 hours. Why? I said, because if my plan works, they'll be selling a 400-pound product instead of a 40-pound product. I know what I'd prefer. Yeah, you're right. They then said, we've done all the calculations. We've just paid out a million dollars for the rights to the game. We've estimated it's going to cost us a million to make the game. And we've done all of our numbers, and we know what we need to sell in order to not only break even but to make a profit and we're afraid that your activity is going to you know going to alter those figures um anyway the net result was that they decided that they would go for it and i was right about their 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 dealers they they were angry for 48 hours and then then they weren't angry anymore um <laughs> They ended up, Ocean ended up selling five times their highest estimate of sales. Nice. And I didn't take 10,000 pieces from them. I took 186,000 pieces because that's how many packs we sold in 12 weeks at Christmas. 186,000 nice. Amiga 500 Batman packs. <laughs> so, so you know, you, you can see why I talk about that because it, it changed the whole face of, of, of marketing. And if you notice, not long after that, Sega and Nintendo were all sat putting packs together, but we did it first. Yep. I'm proud to have one right here. Got yeah, my, you, my cartoon, cartoon pack right there. Yeah. That's one of great. yours right there. Yeah. Deluxe paint in there. That's D paint three, that one. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was so, a, uh, a giant box of cereal. <laughs> well, I'm. <laughs> Now you know why it's appealing to kids, you know, with that big, bold, classic cartoon logo and everything. It looked That's like it. it. 
Well, it probably so, is. It's gone. No, so, say go ahead, please go ahead. No, I was going to say it probably is a cereal because you couldn't get your kids down at breakfast. <laughs> every morning. <laughs> so, so you know, the the five hundred was was probably one of the the most popular machines that they sold to the Mega line. We we're running out of time. But I want to touch real quick about the six hundred. I, mm -hmm. I know originally it was supposed to be the 300. It was supposed to be a lower cost, cost reduced 500. What the yep. heck were they thinking pushing that now as a 600 and it costing more to build and sell than their top selling 500 that no one wanted at all? How'd that come out? Well, the 300 was my idea. I, I actually went to Alley in the UK because we did bundles also for the 64. We kept the 64 alive two years beyond its real sell by date just by doing good packaging and stuff like that. But this Christmas came and I said, that's it. I, we're not going to sell anymore. So I went to Mayday and I said, right, this is what I think we should do. I said, if we can have a cost-reduced, cut-down version of the Amiga, I want to get, I want to retain that demographic audience, those people who paid £200 for a 64-pack. Maybe we can get them up to 250 for a, a low-cost Amiga with very basically, but you could add to it as you needed to, to make it, you know, into a full spec. So that would be the idea is that you would, you'd have a replacement for the 64 in terms of the economies of it. And I said, um, we must call it the 300. So it doesn't confuse anybody in terms of its specification. So that, you know, it was not meant to be something greater than a 500. And the net result was that they, they produced something which cost more to make in the first place. So we made less money on it. They called it the 600, which killed all the sales of the 500. And then we had thousands of people that were not very happy. They bought a 600 and it wasn't anywhere near as good as the 500 was. There were some features on it were better. Yeah, but, it was a couple of things, but it, it wasn't worth more money than, than the 500 no, was. No, absolutely not. And, and so, so you come up with a good idea and they just can't even execute it. Uh, but uh, they didn't even tell us. Honestly, I suddenly got a whole shipload of 600s in my warehouse. What the hell is this? <laughs> but the worst thing is that they all have A300s on the motherboard. You know, that's I mean, right. Just, if you did open it up, that's right. The only machines you opened it up on the motherboard said A300. Yeah. That's right. And and so that's absolutely how it came. I asked for the product, and I, I'm certain that if we had a, an A300 as requested, that we would have kept that audience. Because that certain socioeconomic group they just can't afford anymore, we just lost them. So they're the ones who bought all the Nintendos and the Game Boys and all that because that's all they could afford. We lost that whole audience. Well, David, I, I really thank you for coming here today. We could talk literally for hours, and I hope we'll ha can have you on again, <laughs> bring up more things. But I want to talk one more time about your, your Kickstarter. I don't know, Steve, if you want to bring it up one more time or just talk about it. But you have a Kickstarter that started today for your new book. Yeah, yeah it launched today. And, um, already that's impressive yeah it, it's uh it's i think it's yeah it's a bit higher than that now yes yeah, it's, it's very good i've certainly been launched since well this morning and um yep. uh, the retro buzz uh, we're here to help you man we we got you these guys but we got you covered well it i promise you that it will be a great book i i i, I do produce a good quality product but if anybody hasn't actually bought the original book which is commodore the inside story um you can get that from um uh, if you send me to davidpresence.com, email at davidpresence.com, um, I can put you onto that. I've only got a few copies left. I'm not sure whether I'm going to actually reprint it or not, uh, to be honest with you. But it's a very good read, and it's available uh, uh, as a download as well, EPUB, e e um, Mobi, and PDF. Um, so that, that's probably the best way to get a hold of it. It's also an audiobook version. So. Oh, right up my alley. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just always doing something so I could listen to it while I'm mowing the grass or something. So that's it's, that's well, usually I what you, I do. I can, I can tell you it's it's been narrated by Dan Wood, who um, is a professional uh, radio DJ. Um, uh, he also uh, he he does the Retro Hour podcast in the UK, which is very, very popular. Um, and it's over eight hours, eight and a quarter hours, I think, the uh, audio book. Because it's a swim in 68 pages. It's a very, you know, very um, uh, meaningful book with lots in 368 pages and 90,000 words, I think. Isn't it? I have over three Are acres any, to mow, uh, so pictures. I'll be good. I hope there's some pictures in it. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. Yeah, there is pictures. But I can't right, there we go. I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, I can't, help, I can't help with the pictures with an audio book, though. <laughs> even i can't do that technology <laughs> yeah. so you said um your david uh 
your David Pre- uh, Pleasance is in the process of getting made the dot com, right? So if people yeah, or it's remade, yeah, I think, I, I think yeah, I'm I'm pretty certain that it's open now. Okay, but it's not. It may not may not be fully completed yet. Okay, but easily email at davidpleasance.com will get through to me okay. anytime at all, and then I can direct you to anything you want. Well, even we, if you don't want, <laughs> like, yeah, like like I said, we we appreciate you. We appreciate you coming on, and guys, check it out. Check it out. Uh, stay tuned for some post show here on some of the announcements that happened this week. But uh, we want to thank Mr. Douglas Smith, Mr. Cool Toy. Uh, a lot of great knowledge, man. And his man. hair. And his hair. <laughs> and his beautiful hair. Yeah, no, I, I want to thank David for coming on. This has absolutely been educational. Um, the Commodore and Amiga was unfortunately before my time. So this is great to hear it from, you know, the absolute source to yes. learn about mm-hmm. the and everything. So I, I greatly appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you're very welcome. It was one hell of a ride, let me tell you. Twelve and a half years of bliss. I, I couldn't wait to get to work every day. It was just so special to be part of that whole thing, you know. Um, very blessed. And uh wanna thank this guy here because this is the guy that got it all set up and uh yeah, I know he was giddy like a drunken schoolboy waiting for yeah. this episode. Yeah. You know, it's 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 just one of those things, cause like Doug said, the Migo was before his time. And so a lot of people don't really understand, and yours, and a lot of people don't understand how much this machine really did change the industry, especially in desktop video multimedia, even though Apple was always touting it. And I think you should get that book and his previous book to read up on it, because it's this machine here has got so much more legacy that you guys realize. And it's just a real shame that, like you said, uh, German company Escom bought it and basically snuffed it out. And um, you, no one will know where this poor little guy's going to go or be. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, have you guys seen the uh, the Vampire 4, the standalone? Have uh, I that? have, and that's, it, so these guys don't know what that is. So, so originally there was an accelerator board made for the Amiga uh, called the Vampire, which basically mm-hmm. made uh, tons of new features that the machine didn't have. But now there's a standalone. We don't even need the Amiga computer, but it can emulate okay. an Amiga and do a, a whole lot more. And, yeah, um, basically, in, in a nutshell, what it is, it's about the size of a, a smartphone PCB. And um, put it and switch it on, uh, it will run um, A5, A, A500, 600, 1000, 2000, 3000, 4000 software. It runs the 4000 software 30 times faster than the 4000. It runs the Mega 500 300 times faster. And it runs, and it's absolutely flawless. Now, if that's not enough, at the switch of a button, it'll run all Atari ST software. And if that isn't enough, at the switch of another button, it runs all Mac software up to 8.0. <laughs> that's and easy. A... Anything, can run, anything can run Mac software easy. That's, that's oh, yeah, but, yeah the, the problem with Mac is you've got to make sure the spider hasn't died inside. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been true before they went to Intel, but now that they're on Intel, they're on pretty level playing fields with the PC. I, I use both. I do. I use both because I have certain things that have to be done on Mac and have to be done on PC. So mm-hmm. um, it'll be interesting. I'm going to have to pick Glenn's brain and uh, see see what I should buy and, and mess around with. But uh, before we leave you guys, we want to let you know about uh, next week. Who's our guest, Glenn? And while he's looking for that, um, At Games is doing a summer league, if you guys aren't. Uh, signed up for that or you're you're not aware of that we're going to show you that here in just a few minutes uh, but glenn who's on deck for next week we will have new wave toys on next week woo, woo. that'll Makers be woo, the- woo. that'll be that'll be <laughs> that'll be right up doug's alley yeah i love those so uh make sure you guys uh tune in for that uh for those of you that uh, want to hear us banter a little bit about this week's announcements stick around for some and you, yep, you guys actually have something to talk about next time yes <laughs> well you know hey it's 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 educational right you sit here and you listen Absolutely. to you know because it was before our time i mean so to talk intelligently let the man who was around for this talk intelligently about it so uh guys well, I heard, I- I hope your audience has enjoyed it. Um, it's been great for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking me. It's a, it's a privilege. Oh, absolutely. Well, like Glenn said, we'll have to. And get the honor you, was mine. We'll have, to, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have to get you out for the, for the for the next uh, next time. But guys, stay with us. We'll be right back. And for those that don't stick around, we'll see you next week here on the Retro Buzz. Want to qualify to win a Legends Gamer or Legends Ultimate? 
Participate in the Summer League event and you may be able to do just that. Current Legends Ultimate owners can participate in the 10-week Summer League event starting June 5th, 2020 and ending August 9th, 2020. During that time, there will be a series of weekend leaderboard events for select games each week. This is a battle to the end. Practice up, make your scores count, and top the charts once and for all, and have a beauty of a prize to show for your hard work. Have fun on the leaderboards, and good luck.